Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, the most damaging female spy in U.S. history operated out of an apartment in Cleveland Park, and she used to do ops at the zoo. Writer Jim Popkin has a new book on Ana Montes' 17 years as a spy for Cuba, and he's here to share her story and maybe to pass along some tips he picked up about D.C. area spycraft. It's January 12th, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Jim Bobkin, you're a journalist and author. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Great to do it. So we're here to talk about your new book, which is about Ana Montes. She was, is, a spy for Cuba, who you have been researching for years now, and your book about her dropped last week. This is all very exciting. I want to start at the beginning. Tell me how you got drawn into the story, which I understand revolves around one specific apartment. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was at NBC News and <clears throat> was covering 9-11. I used to cover the FBI and other like in law enforcement and intel stuff for NBC. And when 9-11 happened, that was my complete obsession and, and job. And Ana Montes was arrested 10 days after 9-11. So I had heard about her, but I really just didn't have the time to pursue it for NBC News at that moment. About a week later, a really close friend and a college roommate of mine called and said, did you see this story about this woman, Ana Montes? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, you realize she lived in my apartment in Cleveland Park. In fact, she bought my condo from me. And, you know, he's my college roommate. I spent a lot of time in that apartment and it just made me feel this personal connection with this mysterious woman, Ana Belen Montes, and it got in my head and it stayed there over the years. So this woman, Ana Montes, she's considered one of the most harmful spies in recent history. What was it about her work that was so uniquely damaging? I guess one of the things is, first of all, she spied for Cuba. She's you know, an American. She spied for Cuba for nearly 17 years. And she was really good at what she did. By day, she worked at an agency called the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. And that's like the intelligence arm for the U.S. military. And so she'd go in and she'd memorize documents. She didn't take the risk of taking classified documents out of the building, with very few exceptions. And so that was her day job. Like what kind of documents? Anything connected to Cuba that came across her desk about their military, their politics, but also more broadly, how the U.S. conducts intelligence, not just in Cuba, but around the world. And so her night job was she'd get home to her apartment in Cleveland Park 
And she would essentially type this into an old Toshiba laptop and upload everything that she had learned and could memorize that day. And she did that day after day for nearly 17 years. And then she would transmit that information to the Cubans. So the reason I call her one of the most damaging spies in U.S. history, and I would argue the most damaging female spy in American history, is because of that, just the longevity and the amount of information she passed. Secondly, she turned over the real identities of Americans working undercover in Cuba, and that's primarily CIA operatives in Cuba. That's very dangerous. Uh, she also revealed the names of just hundreds of people, everyday people working on the Cuba account for American intelligence agencies. And then finally, she revealed the existence of a super secretive spy satellite that our government had been using effectively to spy on Russia, China, Cuba, and other countries. And she basically blew that up by disclosing it to the Cubans. Wait, so she did this for 17 years and she goes into the office and she memorizes stuff and she goes home and she types it on her cruddy little laptop. That's a long time. How did she evade authorities all this time? She was good at what she did and very careful. As I said, you know, unlike other kind of famous spies and the two that most people know in recent history are Rick Ames, who was at CIA, and Robert Hansen, who was at the FBI, they both spied for uh, Russia. They took documents out of the building and they risked meetings with Russian operatives where they would hand off documents. Anna did meet in restaurants in DC with her Cuban handler and also in, in the Caribbean and in Cuba. It was disks, not, and you know, in her recollections, not documents. It wasn't like she walked out with photos and maps. It was a little less risky that way. But the other thing is she just convinced hundreds and hundreds of people that she was a great loyal analyst and kept getting promoted. I mean, she got an award by the CIA director. She got probably a dozen awards and cash awards in her 17-year career. And she just fooled them all. So Robert Hansen was the subject of a movie, put Vienna, Virginia on the map. And uh, I suspect that your book will maybe someday be a movie that does the same for Cleveland Park because of this amazing detail, which is that a whole bunch of her family were in the FBI. The betrayal is amazing. Yeah, amazingly. This entire period, while Anna is spying for Cuba illegally, she has four family members working for the FBI. They had no idea that their sister was a spy. So this included Anna's sister, Lucy, who worked in Miami for the FBI as a translator. And then Lucy married a guy, Chris, who was at the FBI. And then Lucy convinced her sister-in-law, Joan, to become an FBI agent. And then Joan's husband, his name is Tito. So that's Anna and Lucy's brother. He was studying to be a priest. And he heard that there was an interest in his wife becoming an FBI agent. And he surprised everyone and said, you know what? I really don't want to be a priest. I'd like to apply to the FBI. So you had at one point four Montez family members in the FBI while sister Anna is the greatest Cuban spy of all time. It's just, the coincidence is incredible. 
Wait, so why did she do this? I mean, was she ideologically committed to, was she a communist? Was she, what, what was the deal? I mean, it, it obviously didn't come from her family. <laughs> right. And I didn't even mention her father was in the military. Her father retired as a colonel in the U.S. Army. So no, it did not come from the family at all. Anna is a classic ideological spy. She believed in Cuba. She might dispute a little bit how Cuba accomplished its goals, but she believes essentially in, in socialism. And mostly she got into this because she was upset with the Reagan administration policies, particularly in Central America. And she also felt, as many Americans do, that the U.S. policy towards Cuba for decades and decades has amounted to bullying. She was essentially approached by the Cubans when she was in graduate school. And she has said, and I've read a lot of her letters from prison, that she was in a unique position to help Cuba. And she felt it was really her duty and obligation to do so. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So your book, it mentions all these locations that our listeners, the people in Washington, might even be familiar with, and they were kind of instrumental to her career. Give us a walking tour of her local world. She's based in Cleveland Park. I should do a walking tour. Maybe I will. You've given me a great idea. Um, I mean, you might need to explain to some people what payphones are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, okay, let's start with where she lived. Um, she lived in a, a small um, red brick apartment building at 3039 Macomb Street in Cleveland Park. Walking distance to the library in Cleveland Park and right across from the WIS, the Washington International School. She lived in the second floor apartment there. She used all the shops, you know, that I'm sure many folks are familiar with right in Cleveland Park, like, you know, where Vache is and all those little stores there. She would go to a dry cleaner. She worked out in the area. But in terms of the spying, she used the zoo many times, you know, which is obviously very close by for her spy activities. So as an example, once the FBI was tailing her and she walks into the zoo she goes down to where at the time, now this is, we're talking 2001. I haven't been in the zoo in a while. Maybe it's changed, but she went down to where the prairie dogs were and then doubled right back. And the FBI interpreted that as, you know, kind of classic spy craft where you, if you want to see if someone is following you, you go in a route and then you go back through the same route and kind of take a look at who's behind you. So she did that. She also would jump on the metro and go up one or two stops north generally and use the pay phones there. And so, again, this is 2000 and 2001. She had a cell phone in her purse. The FBI knew that. But she would go and make pay phone calls. 
She went to, back in the day, the Hex department store. Um, I think it was Models up in Bethesda, the, you know, the sports store. And she would go into places often either looking for a payphone or, again, it's good tradecraft to go in and then come right back out and see who's following you. So there's great detail you know, in the book, and this is from FBI documents, as they're following her all around Northwest D.C. and up by Chevy Chase and into Bethesda. So Washington, well, you know, there. this is probably a pretty spy-heavy city. What kind of kooky stories did you pick up about spying here in the course of your reporting? Well, I, you know, I've lived here for a long time, so it's in the blood here. And you mentioned Robert Hansen. You know, Robert Hansen was a fascinating, flawed character from Virginia, and he would meet or rather leave classified documents under bridges in parks in Virginia. He would take chalk and leave white chalk marks on signs and on postal boxes. A lot of really fun, classic um, spy craft. It's now a pizza joint, but in Georgetown, there's an old restaurant called Au Pied du Couchon, right on Wisconsin Avenue. You had a famous Russian spy go in there, and he was with an FBI agent, and he went to the bathroom and then slipped out and went right to the Russian embassy and, you know, to freedom. So it's all around here. It's all around us in Washington. Quick story about the Russian embassy. One day I noticed as the sun was setting, there's a house, a private house right across from the Russian embassy on Wisconsin Avenue. And as the sun hit the skylight, I could see clear as day, three cameras on three tripods peering down at the front door of the Russian embassy. You couldn't see it the rest of the day, just the angle of the sun was there. And I took pictures and I posted it on this blog on NBC. And I, you know, did what reporters do. I looked up the ownership of the home and it came back to an FBI agent, which was not the best tradecraft in the world. <laughs> uh, that house is still there and folks in the neighborhood now call it, of course, the spy house. But what you'll see that is fascinating, if you walk the block around the Russian embassy, look up and you will see round black domes and their cameras. They're like globes and they're clumped together. They're not just at the obvious entrance of the embassy or behind there's where the cars go. It's the entire block. I counted 43 of these and I can't say for sure because the FBI won't tell me, but I'm next to positive that those cameras go back to the FBI and that's how the FBI keeps track of Russian, quote, diplomats <laughs> or spies uh, and their comings and goings in Washington. All right, so let's say, I mean, you've probably picked up some tradecraft along the way. What if you were a spy? What would be your uh, Washington secret <laughs> meeting spot or uh, message spot? Um, this has been done before, but you share with someone your login information and you don't actually send an email, you just write drafts and you can see that back and forth. So that's probably what I would do. Try my best not to meet but if I were a spy and uh, points to you, I've done a couple interviews now and not had this question at all, but I also would not meet in D.C. I would go to more remote locations because, you know, especially in D.C., in New York, in Miami, the FBI, this is their job. They're supposed to keep an eye on officials who are working at the embassies or missions for our enemies, in some cases our friends as well, and keep an eye on them. 
And that's why, you know, the Bureau, especially with the Cubans, it would say you can't travel more than 25 miles outside of New York or D.C. And it's for that reason to just kind of make it a little bit more manageable. So I'd say, you know, let's make it a 26 miles. We'll meet at a diner. <laughs> Does this make you super paranoid about <laughs> who your friends are in D.C.? Not really, but there's a fascinating substructure in Washington in terms of intelligence that you really would never know about. The CIA here, you have the Bureau, you have so many intelligence agencies and D.C. as, you know, international hub. So you have folks who come here undercover with the embassy. They're called NOX, N-O-C, non-official cover. They may be posing as a, you know, bakery owner, but they're actually affiliated with a foreign government. And it's a buzzing little network here and in, you know, major capitals around the world. I just love that. I love the notion of what is happening under our noses that you're not aware of. We actually did a CityCast episode on bread and bakeries in Washington. Nobody seemed too suspicious in that one. <laughs> Good to know. Wait, so let's go back to Anna for a second. How did she get caught? It's a little complicated, but what happened is the National Security Agency, or NSA, the, you know, probably the, the sleuthiest, most secret spy agency in the country, they got hold of shortwave radio communications out of Havana. And that's how the Cubans communicate with their spies. And they were able to decrypt, you know, decode these communications. And they kept hearing about an Agent S. And Agent S later turned out to be Ana Montes. And they could tell that Agent S was involved at a kind of high level in the U.S. intelligence community and had access to all kinds of information. And some clever folks at DIA took these clues, entered it into their database, and realized, oh my God, not only do we know who the spy is, but the spy is Ana Montes, our prized analyst covering Cuba for the DIA. They took that information to the FBI. The FBI fought them at first, then accepted, believed it, opened an investigation, and then the key thing that tripped up Ana Montes was when the FBI got special legal authority to enter her apartment, the condo on, in Cleveland Park. It's called a black bag job. They entered, you know, without anyone knowing and searched the apartment and they found her Toshiba laptop. They copied the hard drive and a couple days later, they were able to translate it as it was in Spanish, and they realized that there were messages back and forth between Anna and her Cuban handlers, really specific stuff, true names of American operatives. In one case, the Cubans said to Anna, you know, thanks for telling us about Mr. X, uh, name has been scrubbed out. We were waiting for him here with open arms. It was obvious that she was a spy, her laptop really convicted her. The FBI never found her meeting in person with anyone or handing anything off, but the laptop was enough to convince her and she ultimately pled guilty to espionage. And now she has been released. Is she going to be staying in DC? I don't believe so. She is getting out of prison after more than 21 years. She got a 25-year sentence, so some time was shaved off for good behavior. She will likely retreat to Puerto Rico with family. Her um, parents are from Puerto Rico and grandparents, and she has a lot of family there. But 
she's going to keep her nose down. She's on probation for five years. And the last thing she will want to do is to return to this very tough prison where she's been living for two decades. Do you know, has the, the breach in her family, does that remain? What's the state of that relationship? I would say she's close with her mother, who's getting on in, in the years, but has a very difficult relationship. She has three siblings, two brothers and a, and a sister. And so take Lucy as an example. The whole family was humiliated when she was arrested. And Lucy wants the world to know that Anna does not represent the proud Montez family, who are really accomplished in many areas. But, uh, you know, I've been talking to Lucy for over a decade now. She can't stand what her sister did, but she's also loyal to her sister in a way. You know, it's the blood is blood kind of theory of life. And now that Anna is getting out, she's going to try her best not to forgive and forget, but to try to move on and have some kind of a relationship with this woman who made clearly a horrible decision. Jim Popkin, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I really wish you guys well with this great podcast. The book is called Codename Blue Wren, the true story of America's most dangerous female spy and the sister she betrayed. Jim, please reserve me a couple of tickets to the movie opening. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much. And before you go, producer Julia Karen is here with some quick news. First up, we've got an update on the Karan Blake case. That's the 13-year-old boy who was shot and killed in Northeast on Saturday morning. Mayor Muriel Bowser revealed that the man who shot Karan is a city employee. He's been put on administrative leave, and a grand jury is reportedly deciding whether the shooter will face any charges. Meanwhile, a U.S. district judge has ordered that D.C. immediately allow drivers with high outstanding fines to still obtain or renew their driver's licenses. Big time dub for all you Olivia Rodrigo fans out there. Up until now, D.C.'s clean hands requirement disqualified people from getting a range of government documents if they owed the city 100 bucks or more. Supporters think that this could benefit tens of thousands of residents, but some on the city council say the shift gives dangerous drivers a big-time pass. Also, the Walmart on H Street says it's finally started restocking shelves that had been empty for days. The store typically has some of the most affordable groceries in D.C., and especially in the 8th Street area. But last week, you might have seen pictures floating around on Twitter of broken freezers and vacant produce bins. Walmart said it started replenishing those shelves on Tuesday. And finally, we know it might seem far away, but Valentine's Day is really around the corner. We want to hear your stories about finding love or not so much in the D.C. metro area. Got one we should air? Give us a call at 202-642-2654, and you might hear your story on the air very, very soon. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. If you enjoyed the show, there is no need at all to be as discreet as an international super spy about it. Tell the world and tag us. We're at CityCast underscore DC. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I had to sneak in Olivia Rodrigo. How could I not? Come on. <laughs>